All right. Congratulations for being the the remnant that still makes it to Sunday school, even with daylight savings time. That's a that's great. We, of course, are continuing to look at the threefold office of Christ, and again, we're following a book by Richard Belcher called Prophet, Priest, and King. So whatever you hear that's good, it's, it's probably uh, derived from Belcher, and anything that's confusing, I take the blame for that. <laughs> for the next two weeks, uh, Kyle just finished up talking about the priesthood of Christ. So for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the role of the king in the Old Testament. And after those two weeks, we're going to talk about how Christ is the ultimate king, um, the eternal king on our behalf. So before we jump in, I want to ask, by way of introduction, why are we talking about this again? It's, it, may, it might seem like an obscure topic to some, maybe not to you, but, but why talk about the threefold office of Christ? Any ideas? Because it's amazing. Yeah, I, I agree. Any care to elaborate at all? Um, yeah, it's just amazing to think about because you see how like, all of Scripture is connected and the, yeah. the general theme and all these things, how they weave together and how this ultimate idea of mediator and redeemer, which God mm. pre-planned ahead of time, and then had all of these things that would point to the, the ultimate mediator, Christ, mm. in those offices. Yeah, it's just, like, amazing to think about redemption and, um, like, fulfillment and, like, what the, yeah. you know, what the future will be like, you know, in, in, in light of those uh, three offices. Yeah. yeah. It's literally mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah, like the Tony the Tiger, you know, like, meme or whatever, yeah. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. I guess I've seen that where he's just, like... Tony the Tiger? That's yeah. great. Oh, okay. Right. I'll send it to you. I'll share it later. Yeah, good. Yeah. Wow. Send no. it to the TV yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that though. I, I agree. I think as I've gotten to like dig into this a little bit more myself, it is eye-opening to see how this affects how we read the entire Bible. And there's so much going on in God's word under the surface that I think we can see more clearly through the study of the threefold office of Christ. So yeah, thank you. A- any, other, any other thoughts as to why, why we'd spend 17 weeks talking about the threefold office? Yeah. Not necessarily thinking about the, the specific three things, but overall, I think you can have a, um, a picture in your mind of who Jesus is, not necessarily mm. like a, a picture, but just an idea of, oh, this is what he's like. But then when you study, mm. like, these things were holy, it's like you just get to know him even more because he meets our needs in so many ways mm. um, through these different roles that, I mean, some of them I don't think we're as familiar with in, like, American culture. Yeah, um, yeah. But seeing, like, how it's like throughout the Bible, how it's all connected, and I think it just helps us appreciate who Christ is more fully and not just like maybe what we heard about in Sunday school. Um, yeah. Like just a, like we know that he died for our sins, but mm-hmm. this is like more even deeper. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like realization of what that means. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It's, it's so much richer to think of all that, all the, um, at like, you know, as, as fallen humans, we have multiple things going against us. It's, it's not just that we, we have a sinful nature, but we also have, even, even apart from our sinful nature, we have Adam's guilt imputed to us. Um, we have, we have the, our enemy, the devil, who desperately wants to see us uh, perish eternally. And yeah, we, th- there's just so many, so much that we need salvation from. And it's, it's incredible to see the threefold office. I think to, to your point, it helps us see more of like how Christ meets all our needs. So yeah, amen. Well, let's 
start out reviewing our catechism questions, as always. So we're going to do question, uh, yeah, looking at your note sheet. Uh, I'll read the question, you read the answer, and I will um, we'll maybe pause after a couple of these just to, to ask some questions, too, to make sure we're tracking. So question 22, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his state of humiliation and exaltation. So real quick, what, what is meant by his state of humiliation? Does anyone know? He became man? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I'd say it refers to everything from, you know, the incarnation to, you know, the, the lowest of low points is his death on the cross. So, yeah, the second person of the Trinity, it, it uh, yeah, literally took on human flesh, which is mind-boggling in and of itself, and even uh, to humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. So thinking like Philippians 2. And then what's meant by a state of exaltation? Yeah. Resurrection and ascension. Yeah. Absolutely. Resurrection, ascension, reign. He's reigning even now at the right hand of God the Father. And so, um, yeah, I think Philippians 2 is a good uh, paradigm text for this. But Christ fulfills and executes these offices in both his humiliation and, and his exaltation. Um, and, you, and you see that working out in, in different ways. So... Any, any further thoughts on that? All right, we're good. Now, uh, to review, since uh, we just finished off priests, let's, uh, let's read question 24. Uh, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. So how does how is Christ a priest in his humiliation? Becoming a sacrifice for us. Yeah, exactly. And what's a way that he's a priest in his exaltation? Yeah, Kim said it, the intercession. Continual intercession for us. Question twenty five. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. I love that. As we were saying before, we have multiple enemies. Sin, death, the devil, the world, our flesh, uh, even persecutors of, of the church. So he restrains and conquers. He, the devil is a defeated foe right now, but he is still, I, I think of the image of like when you cut the head off a snake, the snake still thrashes about somehow. And I, I think that's a helpful way to think of the devil right now. And so right now, God is restraining the devil. Um, obviously the devil is, is not sovereign, but we, we still look forward to when he will fully and completely be conquered when Christ comes back. So uh, as our king, Christ restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. So now let's do the, the children's catechism uh, on your note sheet. Why do you need Christ as a prophet? I need Christ as a prophet because I do not know the will of God for salvation. Christian, why do you need Christ as a priest? I need Christ as a priest because my sin separates me from God. And Christian, why do you need Christ as a king? I need Christ as a king because I am weak and helpless. Yes. Amen. All right. So, the role of the king in the Old Testament. In order to begin this discussion, we're going to go all the way back to the garden. So go ahead and turn to Genesis 1. 
Kyle's excited? Oh, nice. Don't get excited. But get, get excited because uh, Richard Belcher is here. So, um, so who can read uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28? Actually, you should get excited. This is God's word. Sorry about that. 1, 26 to 28. 26 to 28. Thank you. We have to go back to Genesis and discussing the role of the king because it truly starts here. And so I know that the word king may not be used in this passage, but what do you see in these verses that points to a, the kingly role that Adam and Eve were given? What do you guys think? Dominion. Dominion. Yeah. Dominion over what? Yeah, like dominion over all of creation, I think. And dominion can also be, you know, think of dominion as, as rule. Like in the NIV, I think it's translated rule. Let, let them rule over the fish. So, so yeah, that, that's huge. Any, anything else? Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Kyle. Yeah, the word subdue. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Or fill the earth and subdue it also has this similar idea. Yeah. Dominion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, the mandate of to fill the earth and subdue it. They are to be under God, yet ruling. So I think the, I think the thesis I want to say about this passage is uh, from, from Richard Belcher. He says that the role of dominion given to mankind in Genesis 1 is what lays the foundation for kingship in redemptive history. The role of dominion, the role of ruling given to mankind at the very beginning in Genesis 1, that is the foundation right there for Christ's role as king in, in the accomplishment of our salvation. Let's try to explain that a little bit more. Well, for one, it, it's also helpful to think because we were given, uh, mankind was given the role of kings in the beginning, that also helps us see that redeemed humanity, humanity in Christ, we, are, we should be informed by that original role. So we are to think of even our obedience in Christ as we're, we're trying to, uh, even now, exercise a sort of uh, kingly role. And we're going to uh, get to learn more about that in the coming weeks. So Adam and Eve were created to rule on behalf of God as vice regents over the rest of creation. Does anyone uh, know what I mean by vice regent? A regent in worldly sense is somebody who rules until someone is of age. Hmm. When they're not able to take the throne because they're just a child, a regent rules in their stead. Oh, I didn't know that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. That's helpful. <laughs> so so in this sense, you're ruling on God's behalf, like an ambassador fulfilling his will. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Until yeah. Eve returns. Yeah, nice. So you had a much more technical, precise definition, but that's helpful um, because that's, that's what I was trying to get at is as vice regents, they're ruling on behalf of and under God. Their rule is not independent of their creators. It's meant to be an extension of God's. They were to extend the human race. And... And every, again, like, like I said, every human being created in the image of God is called to rule for the glory of God. And I think we, I don't want us to miss the connection between image bearing and ruling. Because right there, uh, sandwiched in between the references to the kingly role of mankind is God saying, 
let us make man in our own image. And so the image of God is quite a profound doctrine, and I think it implies a lot, but it certainly is not less than our kingly role. That is one of, I think, the primary ways that we're called to image our creator. I want to real quick read a little bit in Psalm 8. Uh, while you're turning to Psalm 8, I'll, I'll tell a little dominion story for you guys from just this morning. Uh, I had dominion over a spider for Pastor Ron. Uh, he, there was a big spider. It was like this big. And I kicked it and killed it. And that's what I thought of when I thought of having dominion over all the creatures. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's exactly what it is. Can I just share really quick? Yeah. Sayla took notes. We were home last week. Sayla took notes. And then she draws a picture. And she draws you killing mount, mount, mounds of ants. Oh, nice. <laughs> so that's what we took away from the sermon. <laughs> nice. And now, and now we've got the spider. <laughs> so, okay. It was like that big. Wow. Wow. Ron told me to take it to Sunday school, but I, I threw it away instead. So. Yeah. But that's also an effect of the fall, I suppose. I don't think Adam and Eve had to kill animals that might hurt them. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to when we won't have to fear spiders and snakes and all that in the new heavens and new earth. So, all right, so Psalm 8. Could someone please read verses 3 through 8? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of? and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Yeah, whatever passes. Whatever passes along the path of the sea. Yeah, good. Yeah, highlighting here, again, he is he has made mankind only a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. And because of that crowning with glory and honor, I, part of what that entails is the dominion. He's given us dominion over the works of his hands. Uh, so, a helpful text as we consider our kingly role. And I want to... I want to, we'll talk about this more in a second, but Israel too, just like Adam, as God's chosen people, they were called to function corporately all together as kings and priests in the promised land. They were called to um, image God and bless the nations through that. And so we're going to talk more about how that was, that call was given to them and they failed, but that's yet another thing that points us to Christ. We're, we're seeing Adam is given this mandate, he fails, uh, you know, Noah in a sense, uh, given another sort of creational mandate, we see him, uh, you know, right, right after that, uh, gets drunk, some funky stuff happens, and, you know, we, we see another fall, uh, and then even with Israel, again, and so this should create in us a longing for, like, who is going to actually fulfill this mandate, who, who can actually be um, truly and rightly uh, bear God's image. So it should create in us a longing and expectancy for the one who God will send. So first off, still in, in the beginning of Genesis, we're already going to start learning about uh, God's redemptive plan. Because as we know, Adam and Eve, they failed in their call to appropriate and extend God's rule on earth. How did they do that? They failed first off to uh, obey God's word uh, this serpent comes in and right when the serpent opens its mouth and starts contradicting God's word Adam should have picked up a sword or uh, maybe he didn't have a sword but he should have done something <clears throat> a sharpened stick I don't know but he should have he should have tried to cast that snake out of there um, get it out of God's holy place the garden um, yet he didn't. Instead, they listened to the serpent, and so they failed in their calling. They rejected God's authority, 
and their rebellion brought all of creation under sin and under curse. And so God in Genesis chapter 3, he's, um, as, as he's uh, basically meeting out the punishment, we see the first sign of hope, the first hint of salvation and redemption in chapter 3, verse 15. Go ahead and turn there. Um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'll, I'll read it for us. God says, even, even in the midst of uh, the, the curse, uh, the telling of the punishment that, that has come about due to the sin, he, he says, I will put enmity between, speak, speaking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. How does this, this is, this is known as like the proto-evangelion or something like that. It's like the proto-gospel. The first uh, mention of the gospel, you could say, in the whole Bible. Who wants to try to explain, <clears throat> what does this have to do with the gospel? What do you guys think? Like, wh- where do you see uh, hints of God's coming redemption? Like, why, why, why is this called the proto-gospel? It's talking about a, a heel and a snake, a bruise. Like, what is, what's going on? Like Kyle. Kyle, you get me. Well, wow. <laughs> Not called out. <laughs> I feel like Anna's got this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I go first. <laughs> or you could just at least say one element if, if you want. Like, what's one element of how this verse tells us of... So, it hints that there is going to be an offspring that comes who is going to basically hurt the head of the snake and in the meantime hurt his heel. Yeah. And, yeah. So, as we know, that's a pointer to Christ that one day he will crush Satan, but also he will be hurt in the meantime, which maybe is to the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, I think I think you're onto a lot. For one, we know that there's going to be enmity between the offspring of the snake and the offspring of the woman. And in many would say that that's pointed to just enmity between God's people and the devil's people, basically. Um, but it gets more specific to talk about a singular offspring. He shall bruise your head. And so we know that there's going to be an offspring of woman, a descendant of Eve. So whoever this person is, he's going to be truly man. But we also know that he's going to be B.A. He's going to, he's going to literally crush the head of the snake. And that signifies defeat, like utter defeat. A, a head wound, a headshot, that's, that is... The kill shot. As, uh-huh. Yeah, so, so he's going to bruise the head of the snake, which I think signifies clearly the, the complete defeat. You don't get a headshot and live. But we also see the means through which this is going to happen is that he will suffer some sort of uh, wound himself. Like his heel is going to get bruised, which, I mean, your heel is important, but if someone shot your heel, you wouldn't die right? And so I think that it is fair to, you know, we see uh, in the cross in Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, I think this points to that because yes, Christ was, he was bruised, so to speak, and that he actually died. He actually suffered and died. But in his suffering and death, it was to accomplish our salvation. And he rose again, victorious over sin and death. And so absolutely. So we're seeing the coming of someone who's great and mighty, someone who is human, but he's so great and mighty, perhaps even he will be divine, and perhaps even like a king, because he will be able to do battle with the serpent, and unlike Adam, he's actually going to win. So the rest of scripture will clarify this, but we already see so many hints of the coming redemption. Any, any other questions or thoughts on that verse? Yeah, Kyle. Something really fascinating yeah. to when it says in verse 15, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and this idea of enmity. So if you think of it at that point, everyone was already under sin and on the devil's side. And so it implies a supernatural work of grace to now create enmity mm. with the serpent where there wasn't enmity at that point. Wow. Yeah, and so just another another pointer to like wow. God doing this work and like he's the one who's gonna do it. Yeah. Wow, I had never thought of that. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. Wow, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, well, that, that was something I heard from Greg Nichols a long time ago. Yeah. He stuck with me because I was like, that's really, yeah. grace right there in the beginning, just even more so. You yeah, know? you're right, yeah. Yeah, literally, yeah, all of humanity just fell into sin. And so the fact that there's going to be enmity between, uh, yeah, the, the devil's people, like the offspring of the snake and uh, the offspring of the woman, God's people, it's like, whoa, like God, God's created a people for himself by his grace. Yes. Wow, that's really good. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so it, it also bears to say, it's worth saying that in defeating the devil, this offspring is going to, in that, restore human beings to their proper roles of ruling on behalf of God. That is our ultimate uh, destiny um, in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's look at some more hints. Uh, on, on your note sheet, it's on the back. Uh, we're going to talk about how the seed of the woman will be a son of Abraham. So throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, we're going to see a few more hints on who this coming one is who's going to make all things right. Abraham, as we talked about a while back, he, he himself even exercised a sort of a kingly role. He uh, had the wealth of a king. He led his troops out into battle against a coalition of five kings to rescue his cousin Lot. And so we see ways that even Abraham is typifying a king. And so God in Genesis 17, well, in Genesis 15, um, sorry, in Genesis 12, God's, God's making promises to Abraham. He's uh, making a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 17, he gives him the covenant of circumcision and promises that Abram will be the father of a multitude of nations. He also furthermore says in, in uh, 17 verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. The Israelite kings would be a fulfillment of this, but also Jesus as the eternal king, fully God, fully man, is the ultimate fulfillment of this. Here's another hint. Uh, go ahead and turn to Genesis 49. We're going to real quick dive into the, these verses. In near the end of Jacob's life, Jacob blesses his sons and speaks concerning each of their futures. And so we get another uh, hint as to where this uh, Redeemer will come from in chapter 49. Who can read verses 8 through... Let's do 8 through 10. Thanks, Sabrina. Judah, your brother, brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on their neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Thank you. Of yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, you're good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Really good. So, Judah is specifically said to uh, have a sort that uh, a ruler will come from Judah in the future. What? What? What do you see in this passage? You can also pull from verse 11 and 12. But what? What did? What are these? What is this blessing? Tell us about. Judah's uh, offspring. Just uh, what what is I mean this could sound a little obscure, but what what are verses eight through twelve? What are they actually saying? Like what's what is uh 
what is being predicted of Judah. Yeah, yeah, perpetual kingship is, I think, the, yeah, if I wanted to say the main point of this, I would say perpetual kingship coming from Judah. Again, ultimately going to be fulfilled in Christ. He's the only eternal king, of course. So, and there's also a lot of other rich imagery in here. Like, I'm, I'm drawing from Belcher here, but... He pointed out how, you know, according to verse 8, his brothers are, he, well, for one, he has a place of prominence among his brothers because uh, kings are coming from Judah. And the reason that it sounds like they're bowing, uh, they're uh, praising him and, and bowing before him is because he's had victory over his enemies. Then there's also the lion imagery, which is very kingly language that's used to describe his future. The victory that will come through a ruler from Judah is going to command the obedience of the peoples, according to verse 10. That makes me think of, of Christ, who is literally saving people from every tribe and tongue to, to himself. The coming, the coming of this ruler is also going to bring abundant blessing. Look at verse 11 and 12. I didn't know what 11 meant at first, but according to Belcher... The, the whole binding a donkey to a vine, that's, a, that's imagery of abundance. Because if you, apparently if you tie a donkey to a vine, that's going to destroy the vine. But there's so many vines, there's so much abundance and prosperity. Yeah, it's so, there's so much overabundance, plentifulness that... You can hitch donkeys with vines. It doesn't even matter because the vine will be destroyed. Yeah, we can spare all the vines. Yeah. So verse 12, uh, images like that a, a healthy people, um, healthy eyes, healthy teeth. And so the abundance leads to a healthy appearance among the people. Wine will be as plentiful as water because he's literally just washing his garments in wine, his, his vesture in the blood of grapes. So it's... Images of complete overflowing blessing. And that is, that, that's amazing to think about how that will even ultimately be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. Where there will be no want, no lack. So, main point is, there, it is it, an utter image of, or well one, the image of perpetual kingship. And then with that comes abundance and prosperity from the lion of the tribe of Judah. So we, we see uh, also a star out of Jacob in Numbers. We're not going to uh, spend too much time because I want to get through everything, but basically Balaam is a diviner who was called to curse God's people. Uh, the, the king of Moab was freaked out by Israel they're traveling towards him. He's afraid that they're too numerous and powerful for him. And so he calls a diviner to curse them. But instead, all Balaam does is he looks to the future and sees that a ruler, that the imagery of scepter is used for ruler in this passage. And, and he says a ruler is going to come out of Israel. So this is in Numbers uh, 24, 17. Yeah. So it's, he, he references a, the, a coming one as a star that will come out of Jacob. And so this is thought to refer to perhaps uh, the Davidic dynasty. So wish we had more time to dive into that. Now I want to get, this is like, this I think is the most interesting, uh, or th this passage is really helpful in thinking about the role of the king. So go to Deuteronomy 17. We're going to spend some time in here. As you're turning there, this passage defines the king's role in Israel. Israel doesn't yet have a king, but it's saying, you know, when you get to the land, uh, you, you may uh, set a king over you. And so it, it, in Deuteronomy 17 and 18, it's talking about the roles of priests, judges, kings, and prophets. 
nice little division of authority. So before we, before we read part of uh, Deuteronomy 17, I want to again say that Israel... Actually, no. Let, let's first read uh, Deuteronomy 17. So who can read 14 and 15? Go for it, Kyle. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers who shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Thank you. So what requirements from just even these two verses, what requirements are put on the king? Yes, that's huge. And one from among their brothers. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, so this was not you choose whatever king you want. This was if, if when you get to the land and possess it, you say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So, yeah, really good, Anna. I want to also real quick point out, there, there has been a splintering of the offices at this point. What I mean by that is, you know, Adam and Eve were originally called to function as prophets, priests, and kings in the garden. And Israel, even, God, God brought his people out of Egypt. He constituted them as his people. And corporately, they were to function in the land that he was giving them as prophets, priests, and kings who would embody God's law, who would image God. Yet, like with Adam and Noah, we see a fall with Israel too. We see, I think, primarily the fall happened at Sinai when as Moses is up on the mountain, um, in the presence of God, the people down there are asking Aaron to, to make them a golden calf who will go before them in battle, which is a rejection of God as their king. Because God is the one who goes before his people in battle ultimately. He's their ultimate king. So when they say, make for us a calf who will go before us, that right there is an explicit rejection. And so in Israel's fall, I think that we see now the offices splinter. Um, and so that's why now all of a sudden in Deuteronomy 17 and 18, we're, we're talking about prophets, priests, and kings. So it's cool to see that Christ brings back these offices that, that had splintered under like human fallenness and sin. Christ brings them back together and fulfills them perfectly in his person. So... Before, before we talk more about Deuteronomy 17, I want to mention a little bit about kings in the ancient Near East so that we get an idea of how radical the description of the king in Deuteronomy 17 is. Because as, as you can imagine, kings in the ancient Near East were, they were seen as practically divine, if not divine. They, they were the authority. There was no contradicting the king. Kings in the ancient Near East were normally the source of all laws. They were the very foundation of righteousness. They were the source. So when we read Deuteronomy 17, we're going to see a big difference there. Kings were thought to bridge the boundary between the divine and human orders. And therefore, they, they were seen to like share in the divine realm. So kings in the ancient Near East, highest authority. I wanted to real quick... Uh, mention King Nebuchadnezzar with respect to this. Um, Benjamin Glad, uh, I, was, I was reading something, a, a book by Benjamin Glad. I, I forget the name, Kyle knows, but he, he parallels Daniel chapter 2 and 3 with Genesis 1 through 3 and shows how King Nebuchadnezzar basi basically functions as like the perfect anti-image of God. So Look at this. In Genesis 1 and 2, God is the sovereign creator 
and he, he fashions humanity in his image. But what does King Nebuchadnezzar do? He does basically the opposite. In Daniel 3, he has a false god made, an image of himself created in his likeness. So he's the anti-image of God. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve to mediate his rule over the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, he's trying to mediate his own rule over the earth in Daniel 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, God commands Adam and Eve to worship only him. Nebuchadnezzar, he orders all of humanity to worship only his statue. And then finally, God is the supreme fountain of truth, of course, in Genesis 1 and 2. It's God who gives uh, his, his word. He gives the command for them to be fruitful and multiply. He gives the command for them to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is the fountain of truth, the lawgiver. But of course, in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who claims to be the lawgiver. And so I was fascinated by, by seeing that parallel. And I wanted to bring, bring that to y'all's attention to make the point of how radically different the, king, the, the role of king in Israel was to that of her neighboring nations. So let's, uh, let's now read more about kings in Israel. Uh, this is point two. Who can read Deuteronomy 17, 18 to 20? Thanks, Ron. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Mm, thank you. In these verses, what ways is the authority of the Israelite king limited? I think there's multiple ways. What ways do you guys see? How is his authority limited? Yes, that is in uh, the, the verses uh, prior. But yeah, we're going to talk about that soon, oh, too. I'm yeah. Sorry. No, you're good. You're good. No, you're fine. I mean, it's, it's still in the same passage. No, no worries. Um, but yeah, what, what do you guys see in 18 to 20? How is his authority qualified, limited? Well, he doesn't govern himself, right? Yeah. He is to... Yeah walk in accordance with what God has laid out in his law. Yeah. Um, so he can't just kind of do whatever whatever he wants. Yeah. He's bound by the law. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, anything else? I love how he's to write for himself in a book a copy of this law he, it's, it's to be with him. He's to read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words. But I, I love how it specifically says that uh, the Levitical priests need to approve of this. He could not get away with changing God's law if this functioned rightly. The Levitical priests were going to check and make sure that the king was not tampering with God's word. And so I think that's, that's yet another way that we see his authority limited. He was to be under God's word. He was to learn to fear the Lord, who is the true ultimate king. And even the Levitical priests were to make sure that he had God's word faithfully uh, available to him or that he wasn't tampering with it. So that, again, this is radically different from the role of the king in any other society. Andrew, I just yeah. have to point out, too, that the time it would have taken to make the copy hmm. this would have probably been like an ongoing process of you know submitting approval submitting you know what i mean hmm. it, you know you think too like when it says that they handed jesus the scroll of isaiah yeah you know what i mean like each book would have been like its own scroll 
So this mm. would have not just been a one-time thing, but this would have been part of his duty as a king. Mm. I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's such a perpetual duty. I also think it's incredible that it says that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Do you think that that was true of any other ancient Near Eastern king, that their heart was not lifted up above the other? Like, that's, that is really radical. I can't imagine a king being called to not, ha- yeah, not look down on others around him or see himself as, as over, as, uh, like better than them or, or over them in that way. So that, that is incredible. The, the king within Israel was to not be the highest authority in the land. So numbers, uh, you know, in numbers and in other places in the Pentateuch, God is acknowledged as king in Israel. So, so even though God's allowing for there to be a king in Israel, it doesn't negate his ultimate kingship. Even the king in Israel will be under authority. So even though it's not inherently necessary because God is their king, God's the one who's going before them, fighting their battles, uh, defeating their enemies. So let's read verses 16 and 17 and think more about the temptations that would come with kingship. Who can read 16 and 17? Go for it. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Again, this is utterly different from other kings in the ancient Near East. So here, what temptations apparently come with kingship? What temptations is God having these kings guard against in, in these verses? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, just not getting rich and then not having like um, a big army, maybe, like many horses yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And then not having a lot of wives. What's wrong with getting rich and having a big army? Like, what's, what's the big deal with that? Like, why would that be a problem? Shouldn't God's people prosper and be able to throw down with a big army? And shouldn't God's people have abundant wealth reflecting? Him is their king who provides for them. Maybe, sorry, I was going to say. But maybe, it, I, I was suggesting, but maybe it's like for Israel to have that. That's one thing. But it's saying the king cannot. Nice. Yeah. So it's like one yeah. man shouldn't just rise above everyone with riches and army. And yeah. Yeah. I think that's Are definitely, we, I think that's definitely true. Yeah. Are we say yeah, just, yeah, building on that too, like. Uh, it's very easy then to like put your confidence in those things, yeah, right? and like and like look to them. Like to your point, you know, when you have all those, it's very easy to, to put your confidence in those things instead of in the Lord as King. Yeah, um, yeah, because there's yeah. something about seeing that in front of you, and you're like, look at how much I have, you know? Yeah, look at what you know, and then just like lifts up your heart. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The horses that that had to do with the army. So he's saying, don't get a huge army because if you do. You're going to be tempted to trust in the strength of your army, trust in yourself for military victory, rather than trusting in the Lord. And then the the wives, not only is it a, dis, a disobe, disobeying of like Genesis 2, but also the foreign wives... That, that implies alliances with other countries. And so again, that's you're trusting in your alliances rather than the Lord. Furthermore, foreign wives would come in and they would be worshiping false gods. And they would be a, a temptation in that way to lead the king astray. And if the king's led astray to worship false gods, the people are obviously going to follow behind not, not long after. And so, so that was a huge temptation for the king. And then finally, as, as Kyle and Ann already pointed out, wealth would increase the temptation for the king to think of himself as above others and not needing to obey God. It would, of course, 
give him the temptation to lift his heart up above his brothers. So again, the king, it, it, the, the role of the king is limited. There are, it's not anything goes. There are limits. There are temptations that come with that. The king is to be under God to lead the people in the worship of God. So finally, we're going to talk real quick in the one minute we have about the book of Judges. Just to, if, if you've read Judges recently, you remember that it is utter moral chaos. The, God is merciful to deliver his people through these judges. But even with the judges, you see them get progressively worse and worse, progressively uh, less and less faithful. Um, and so Judges ends the final four chapters with chaos there's morality is uh uh breaking down at the national level and at the individual level uh drawing from belcher he says a levite and a tribe participate in the establishment of their own religious system a city in benjamin acts like sodom and gomorrah a levite shows little concern for his concubine who is abused horrendously and the response of the tribes against Benjamin only makes things descend into more chaos and violence and uh, sin. And so the refrain, there's two refrains in Judges that really should get our attention in light of what we're talking about. One is, it said multiple times that in those days, there was no king in Israel. And then it's also said, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this is pointing to Israel's need for a king who under their king, the Lord, would lead them in faithfulness to God. They need a king who will actually uh, help them in, help them fulfill their mission, help them obey their Lord. Uh, so Judges ends showing just the utter chaos of the, the sin that's just running rampant. Everyone's a law unto themselves, just doing whatever they see as right in their own eyes. And a king, there's hints that a king, a, a truly righteous king is part of what Israel needs. So in the coming weeks, we're going to turn to that and see how Christ ultimately fulfills this. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we praise you that we can come together. Uh, would you bless our time now in corporate worship and help us to hear your word with humility and, uh, and trembling and, and faith. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.